everyone. Welcome to another Ruby Rogues. I'm David Kimura, and today on our panel, we have Andrew Mason. Hello. And we are introducing a special guest, Mike Schutte. Howdy, how's it going? This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So, Mike, do you want to give us the elevator pitch of who you are, why you're famous, and just some of the things that you're working on? <laughs> sure. I am definitely not famous. I was lucky enough to give a talk at RailsConf a couple of years ago, which I think is how I ended up here. But I'm a front-end developer now at TED Conferences, and I had back-end training at a code school called Turing in Denver. It's a seven-month code school. It's pretty intensive, and I got really great training there. I just fell in love with building things and the process of you know taking these kind of abstract requirements that people want in order to organize data and figure out ways to make that a pleasant experience. So naturally, I drifted more towards the front end once I started working professionally. There seemed to be a lot more work to be done in terms of transporting old jQuery and Backbone and et cetera, JavaScript to you know more modern libraries. So I ended up doing a lot of that kind of work and really enjoyed it. So I really like the idea of code as like a communication tool. And that's kind of the the gist of the talk. Stop testing, start storytelling. Yeah. Okay. And so usually when we think of testing, we think of automated tests and writing some mini tests or R spec. And so would you explain what storytelling would look like? Yeah. So it's kind of like the, the motivation behind this perspective was when I, I actually ended up teaching a little bit at the code school that I went to because I had a background in education before getting into software development. And I noticed that, that sometimes there's like a hesitancy to even get started with the test, right? Like I often hear, you know, I, well, I don't know what to test or how to test it. And so it's going to be the same types of, of tests, you know, feature specs, if we're, if we're talking about Ruby or Rails, you know, unit tests and different kind of assertions. But the idea is more about the mindset to, to put yourself in when you're writing these tests. So like the big goal that I like promote in this perspective is to not really worry about like use as as low level coding abilities as possible and really try to think about what you're trying to describe and and things like RSpec and the describe it's kind of syntax I think push you to think in this way. But really yeah, it's more about the process of how do you actually what kind of mindset do you want to be in while writing these tests and and what can you kind of discover about your code based on how easy or not it is to to think away from the implementation details. Does that make sense? Yeah, so you're almost really just telling a story about this particular test instead of just making, or I guess essentially, if the test isn't really readable by a non-developer, then it's not really telling a story. It's just writing code. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's exactly, I would agree with like, that's kind of a goal that I have is to say, the test is almost the first 
point of contact away from, you know, the source code where it's like actually being used. And so if that is unwieldy or difficult or, you know, requires a lot of setup, then maybe it's a hint to me that like, oh, maybe this is maybe unorganized or I approached it in a difficult way that could be made easier. Because if it's hard to use in the test, then it's going to be hard to use elsewhere in the application. Yeah. And I can really get behind that because I worked on a previous application where it was just highly complex. And essentially, you had 10 different kind of models that were all very intimately connected one another for processing business calculations. So doing any kind of tests on those, you really needed to stub out all 10 of these different models in order to tell the story. But looking back, if it was architected correctly or a bit differently, there is a certain level of abstraction that each one of those models in themselves contain. And then you would have an integration test to kind of tell the whole story and then Mm -hmm. your smaller tests to tell the story about each one of these individual models. Yeah, yeah, that's, that, I think that, that, that makes me think of, um, there's a book, 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and there's like hundreds of characters, a lot of them with the same names, right? And so we, we have an intuition for stories that are difficult to keep track of what's going on and who's, who's saying what and things like that. And so I think, uh, again, it's like when we're trying to, to use tests in order to communicate the intent of what the application do, should do under certain conditions, if it's hard to to set that up in a succinct way, then yeah, it, I think it's a, a hint at that, you know, maybe things could be designed a little different. But I know a lot of times it's a lot easier said than done, especially with, you know, a legacy system. So I'm desperately trying to find it, but there was a really good episode recently of Tech Done Right with Noel Rappin and Sandy Metz. I think it was episode 69, okay. where Sandy Metz talked a little bit about this and she was like, you know, if you're test isn't easy to write and you're having to like create tons and tons of objects just to test what you're doing. She's like, then your system or the class you're trying to test is way too interconnected. And it might make sense to try to break that up a little bit into more separated concerns so that each of your tests can be specifically focused on what you're actually trying to test versus trying to set up a test that has, you know, you need a user, a group, and the group has to have like a team and the teams have yeah. things, you know, kind of continuing on that now, that line, you can really get it to like set up hell. Oh, absolutely. And I found that if you follow these solid principles, then your testing essentially is going to be a lot easier. There's going to be a lot more classes or modules to test, but overall it's going to be easier to test because you just have one small class you know, maybe several small classes to test individually. Yeah, and that one one thing I find too is that if you focus on, uh, you know, I think it comes up a lot specifically with business logic and, you know, computational type things where if you focus on the more unit level tests and logic, then composing them, you know, if you're doing some type of composition pattern, that can be, to me, I actually don't feel the need to test it if all that it's doing is pulling together you know, this stream of well-tested units, like if all those units are tested and this more integration level function is just stitching those together, then I can be, you know, I'm comfortable enough knowing that that works as long as all those other functions work. So I think you kind of, you don't really, by by investing early on in those, like you said, those like maybe more partitioned out sections of the code, you kind of get benefits later on, you get some wind in your sails 
Yeah, so I guess a good example of this would be like a shopping cart that you're checking out on. So you have several different products with each one of those products, you might have a different quantity and then each one of those have a price. You then have your subtotal, you have your taxes that gets applied, shipping that gets applied based on the weight of everything, and then you have your grand total. So normally when we think about a shopping cart, we're always focused on that very last piece. Well, to get the grand total, you have to know all the different products and their prices and quantity. You have to know how to calculate the tax for whatever location you're in and then how to calculate the shipping. So you're going to be requiring so many different models and stuff just to get to that grand total, which does probably need to be tested. But if you were to test each individual component, you know, just test your quantity times your price, you know, that would be one good story where you're saying like, make sure that the quantity and the price comes out to a correct total. And then you test based on this amount of money and this location, you're going to have this kind of tax. So you're not even really focusing or needing to know what the models are because you really just need to know the address or wherever that person is located to calculate the taxes and so forth. So I think that's a problem that a lot of us have is abstracting away the big picture and breaking it down into smaller stories or smaller things. So what kind of advice do you have for someone who has trouble getting out of the big picture and focusing more on the smaller stories to tell? That's, that's a great question. One thing that I sometimes try to do is is just read the the code as if I'm just reading uh, a section in like a novel or a news article where just really reading the words for what they are they are and not really thinking about the fact that it's code, right? So just identifying it's kind of just pattern recognition. So it's like, what does this function even depend on? You know, are are all of the words inside of this tied to the arguments passed in, or am I reaching outside of that scope and grabbing other things? And usually from there, I can start sketching out uh, the things that I need to test and, and really what what this function does or what this part of the application does. And so I think in terms of coming down from like the abstraction clouds to the ground, it's, it's more about what are these dependencies? Like nine times out of 10, I'm, I'm mostly looking at what does this particular function need in order to do its job? And so if I can understand its dependencies, I might see that, oh, one of those dependencies itself has dependencies. And I feel like you kind of follow that tree almost until you reach leaves. And then once you have leaves, then you, you know, literally you're, you're as far from abstraction as, as you can get. And so from there, I would like test up and kind of test as needed as I go up back up the tree to add more abstract levels. That, that's kind of how I approach it. Yeah, one thing I've also been doing more recently is abstracting out those thing, those pieces of code so it's not so interconnected. And then in my test, I just assert that whatever I'm testing is calling that other object or instantiating that other object and then just stubbing that out. So I'm not actually running that piece of code because I'm already unit testing that, uh, that object or that poor or whatever you want to call it. But in my test that it's going to need, I just you know ensure that it's getting called, and then I stub the response. Yeah, because yeah, there comes that line where you don't need to like test that Ruby works, right? Like I know I went through a phase where I would like over test things and like make sure that you know it, 
throws an exception. So it's like, well, you know, if you give it the wrong things, it will throw an exception. So it, it, I think it's helpful to draw some boundaries for sure. Yeah, over testing has never been my problem. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I found also is in the past, I would be very relaxed in how I would pass objects into other plain old Ruby objects. So I might have an application or an active record, which I just pass into a decorator. And while that does work, you know, and it'll get the job done, I'm then creating a dependency on a plain old Ruby object to an active record object. And it just starts getting more and more complicated. Or I would pass in a hash of options instead of doing keyword arguments. And in those cases, it gets to be a lot harder to test because then you have to go back, you know, a couple of levels deep to find out what are the dependencies of this Ruby object that I'm trying to test. And then tests start to get a bit more muddy and more complicated. So today, like if I want to test a uh, email formatter or phone number formatter, instead of passing in the Ruby object or that record that has the phone number or email address or whatever, I would just pass in the simple string that I really need. So I'm keeping the models or the classes that I'm writing a lot simpler. So that way, when I do get into testing, there's actually not much setup or not much stubbing that you have to do around that. So I found that's that makes life a lot easier and it also makes the application more maintainable because I know that if I ever change the user model, then chances of it affecting my decorators or something else, it's a lot less likely. Yeah, it's like the the law of Demeter, right? The you know it's okay to know your neighbor but not mm-hmm. your neighbor's neighbor. So it's like if it if a formatter just depends on a string you know, the odds of the API for strings changing is very unlikely, but yeah, the user model might change a lot. So I know that everyone has their own preference of what kind of test code to use, you know, really just the, the backend, like RSpec or Minitest. What is your viewpoint or how do you test? Do you use Minitest or RSpec or do you use other stuff as well? Most of my experience with Ruby has been on Rails applications, and most of my Rails experience has been using RSpec. So yeah, doing uh, model specs, controller specs, and view specs, I actually ended up appreciating the perspective of, of minimizing the amount of full-on feature specs you have. And you know, for for simple things like conditional logic, you, using view specs, ThoughtBot has a bunch of really um, opinionated kind of approaches on how to test, uh, which I tend to follow and agree with. And yeah, just so you know testing in a very MVC approach. And then, uh, like I said, I've drifted pretty heavily towards the front end. And so using a similar approach, Jest is, is often the, the go-to for React. Um, there's also some more lightweight testing libraries. I really find that the the overall perspective, like, like we're kind of talking about in terms of the, the perspective of who's calling the code or what is calling the code, I, I really don't think it matters if you're using the more described syntax or the more like it or testing test underscore syntax, the same philosophy applies of, you know, how can I, how easily can I set this up? How easy is it to talk about what this function or part of the application does? So I have, especially in regards to that talk, the RailsConf one that was largely around the idea of RSpec. But yeah, I I think if you take the time to really think about, again, the mindset and the process that you use to write a test, then the, the tool you use becomes interchangeable in a lot of ways. 
Yeah, I agree. And I have like a mini rant. Nate and I were talking about this. Nate couldn't be here today, but there are so many things coming out and there's tools I've seen that are basically taking mini tests or RSpec and then they're trying to morph in their favorite. Like if you work at a company that uses mini tests, but you really like RSpec, I've seen a lot of developers reach for a tool that will give them basically, they want their cake, but they have to eat the company. <laughs> so they they morph together some bastardization of the two of them, like mini test spec or... I saw recently Rue Weekly, a tool called MaxiTest, or, I mean, even Nate has something that adds asserts for RSpec called like grumpy old man. It's frustrating to see this. I understand the value that those tools have, but it's also kind of frustrating for people coming behind you and maintaining those tests because now you have this weird syntax that's like in between both of the two bigger, you know, testing frameworks and it's going to become harder to maintain that. If one of those comes out or isn't maintained anymore, then you're going to be there. So I, I don't know. It, yeah. I've seen this more and more, and it, it, it's starting to bother me. Yeah, I, it's funny you say that because I have noticed that in other things where customization often feel like we run into this a lot. And I, I think since software development has a lot of uh, certainty involved, right? There's a lot of black and white, you know, things work or they don't. But we forget that we're very susceptible to just irrational biases, you know, towards why well, I like describe it syntax. And like, I've slowly gone away with even, you know, I, the first thing I did was I uh, stopped using like a custom Vim RC. Like I just use all the defaults now. And what I found is like with most of these things where I stopped customizing and leaning on the ways that I have kind of gotten used to, it takes like a day or two to get you to, let go of that like attachment you had. And, and it, it ends up being like very simple, even though like upfront, you're like, ooh, like this is weird. I don't like it. And so the benefits I think are that, yeah, you, you have a more agnostic approach and you can like hop into different systems a lot easier and just kind of have faith that like, you know, it feels weird right now. You might think it is like stylistically a bad choice, but then, you know, give it a day or two and those feelings go away like surprisingly fast. That's what I found at least. I don't know if y'all can relate to that. Hey folks, I want to tell you about a great system that I just found that has made my life a ton easier. That's Cloud 66. A lot of folks think that deploying is a pain. I kind of grew up as an ops guy and so I never really felt that way until I tried Cloud 66 and realized that the way that I was doing it with Capistrano, pushing stuff up to DigitalOcean, it really was kind of a pain. And when things didn't work, I had to go in and I had to bang my head against the wall to figure it out. Plus all the setup stuff was just a big headache. And what I found with Cloud66 is that it's a really nice way just to get everything set up. I just told it I had a Rails app, and off it went. It set it all up, it does the deployment, and now that I have other developers working with me on PodWrench, which is what I'm using it for here, all I have to do is give them access, and then they can go push the button for me, and it gets deployed. It's really nice, it's straightforward, it has all of my environment variables in it, so I didn't have to do any setup that way either. I just had to go in, put in my AWS credentials and a few other things that I was using for third-party apps, and it set it up and ran it. So if you're looking for a great solution for deployments, use the promo code RubyRogues. That's all one word, capital R, capital R, RubyRogues, for $66 off Cloud66. This only works for new users, but man, it is awesome. So go check them out, cloud66.com. So with going from a Rails beta to Rails 6, there weren't many changes in the core. However, upgrading 
the Rails or the RSpec version, it wasn't supported back in beta. You had to reference the master branch of RSpec. And I didn't like that. So what I found myself doing recently is going back to just using mini tests, what's included in the Rails core, because my focus isn't really my developer happiness of what I'm used to. It is my developer happiness of when I have to upgrade Rails again to a newer version. (laughs) I want to make myself happy then a year from now when Rails 7 is released because updating my Rails application for security purposes or just you know making sure it's current is going to be my ultimate down the road long-term goal. And RSpec doesn't help me accomplish that. It actually hinders me from accomplishing that. So I think sticking closer to the Rails core, reducing your gem dependencies is going to be a lot more important in the short term and long term, even if you do have to you know, almost digress and go back to a testing model that you didn't like or you're not used to. Yeah, I, it was a, one of my first couple weeks uh, joining the, te- the team at TED. There's you know, a lot of really experienced and opinionated, rightfully so, uh, Rails developers. And we were having a conversation about metaprogramming. You know, and I think I'm still guilty of, you know, I've been coding for like three years now. And I'm definitely guilty of premature abstraction, right? It's like, oh, we could metaprogram this, you know, or we could like, you know, dry this up like and the things that you're like the more practical things like how easy is this to search in the code base like is this easy to grep you know oftentimes with metaprogramming it's not and like things that are yeah just more about day-to-day maintenance and the next developer who's who you know maybe they're gonna have to upgrade it let alone just use it those more practical considerations i feel like i'm slowly learning to appreciate more than than to satisfy my my urge to do something fancy you know (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And I totally agree with you on that metaprogramming aspect. I've worked on an application where they took it to an insane degree where they would have their database seeded with methods that the database, you would then call down those records and it would then define methods off of those records. Horrible pattern. You know, and I think that's just taking it to an extreme Because like you were saying, you try to find, okay, where is this method actually being called? And you never think to look into a database record for the method name and its function. It's, you know, a horrible pattern. But that kind of goes back to, I would much rather my application, when someone else looks at it, they look at it and they're like, what's so special about this application? You're just using normal routes and, you know, like a few scaffolds. I mean, what's so special about it? Because it's so easy to understand. And because it's easy to understand, kind of back to our original topic here, it's telling a story that the reader will be able to understand. And that's going to make it so much easier to not only test, but also to maintain in the long run. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and like one, one of the things I think about for sure is with each test, uh, that was another place where I would be thinking more as a coder than as a, a user or like, you know, that's kind of the other or another angle on that idea of, of testing as storytelling is that when you're thinking about how this thing actually ends up being used or like, where does it actually fit in the, the grand scheme of the application? Like oftentimes when you're implementing a solution, you rightfully lose track of where in the forest that thing sits, right? Because you're, you're on the inside, you're trying to make it work. 
But what you're not thinking about is like all the different contexts in which it will be used and applied and things like that. And so similarly, when I'm writing code in tests, you know, I used to do things like set things up in arrays and then iterate through them and have all these, you know, I could run like 100 assertions in, in like an each loop. But that, you know, again, that's maybe fancy, but it's not as clear if someone is really interested in a use case, a particular use case, it might be hard to go into that test file and grok, like, where's this like specific example that they're trying to see if it, there's a test for or not. So now I'm much less, or I'm much more motivated to, to keep very repetitive code to describe each test case in its own right. So it's easy to search for. It's easy to, um, yeah, like basically tailor the next person's investigation instead of them having to like parse through my, you know, dynamic wizardry. Yeah. And that's kind of like a testament to if you can bring a junior developer onto your team and they can reach a you know senior level quickly because your code base is just that easy to understand, it's not doing fancy stuff, then you know that you have a pretty well maintainable application. But if it takes a junior, you know, hundreds of hours of sifting through the source code trying to read your tests and, you know, it's just overwhelming, then you know that you have probably overcomplicated it to a degree where, you know, it's just now technical debt instead of fancy code. Definitely. One question I have is, do you test your JavaScript like in a Rails app? Yeah, so this is kind of a simpler question now. I would say like if it were asset pipeline, I don't think I've ever written a test you know, when you're using, uh, what's it like when you have like the manifest files, you know, I I forget what that's called now even, but where basically there's no modular imports, things like that. I've never written tests for that kind of JavaScript, but now I test anything that I have to like sit back for a second and think like, well, how am I going to do that? You know, like anything that requires any marginal sense of, of thought in terms of computational logic or, you know, some tricky event handling. Um, I'll, I'll write some, just tests, uh, you know, if I have to do some virtual DOM stuff, things like that. So I, I do still try to test pretty heavily. And again, it, it's not so much as um, it, it's more about having the proof of concept. Like, is this component easy to use? Am I handling this event in a way that makes sense? Because if, if I find that it's like super hard to test, then I'll often go back, implement it in a different way that it is easier to test. And then I find that the solution end, ends up being more extensible. So but yeah, have you ever tested the more, the old, older kind of asset pipeline JavaScript environment at all? I have never written a JavaScript test in a Rails app. I'm just going to say that right now. I yeah. have Other JS seen tree, it done. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have seen someone else do it, and I don't remember what testing framework it was, but it was mm. an app that it was a Rails app that had been added uh, React to it, and and not in like a, a front end back end sort of way. Like they use like one of the Rails like React um, gems and integrated yep. React into it. And they use some testing library. It could have been just they somehow wrote tests for that in there. I don't know how. Uh, I probably should go back and look at it, but I've never done it. But it's always been something I've thought about. For me, I basically just do system tests for those. You know, because I try not to make JavaScript the primary focus of my Rails application. Uh, and that includes adding in JavaScript frameworks and stuff. So, you know, really between stimulus and Webpacker, 
you know, I'll bring in libraries and they are just very contained and doing a system test or a happy path test, it's going to be good enough for the most part. I don't actually test the actual JavaScript code. Yeah, that makes sense. The other tool that I, I had mentioned in the show notes uh, was Storybook. Have y'all worked with that or other developers using the, uh, I think Airbnb puts it out. It's like a visual library of components. I haven't. I haven't so, yeah. either, but I know what it is. Okay, cool. Yeah. That, I mean, that it, it takes it to like a whole nother level of, it, it's not automated at that point. And there's actually some moves that they're making to standardize the export format so that you can both visually test them, put them in your storybook for stakeholders to view kind of in isolation. But then the export is also something that you can import to test. But basically, it's cool because you basically have unit components. So they're, they're like visual unit tests. So you can, again, not automated, but you can look through your entire component library and say like, you know, what do buttons look like in our system? What do input fields look like? Uh, and then you can wrap little states around them to, you know, show them, show them in different states and things like that. And it's one of those things that I think it takes some extra setup and that's often, you know, some, some apprehension around tests is the time investment it takes. But then once you get it laid out, the, the speed of development is super rapid afterwards because you've already used them instead of just like writing components one off here and there, you've like designed this very flexible thing that, uh, right away, in order to use it, you have to expose it in the storybook. So you're actually using it as a component to be displayed on the DOM. And so once you you kind of work out the quirks there of like, oh, I need to pass state in and I need to do all these things, it's ready to go. So then in your application, when you actually have a feature to build, you know that it already works. You know it already responds to events well and it uh, you know is extensible and things like that. So it's kind of a fun uh, coincidence that it's called Storybook, but I think it, again, puts you in a very caller-first perspective of like, wh- what's it like to actually ch- try to consume this code? So it's, it's a fun workflow. Another direction I've gone with tests in the past is using uh, Cucumber. And so in my previous employer, we would have Cucumber tests that the QA team would write. So we kind of taught them the syntax for Cucumber and then they would pass over the test to us and we would actually write the backend, which would satisfy each one of those Cucumber lines. So they had a good idea of what was getting tested and we had an idea of what they were wanting to test and we would just write the backend to satisfy you know, those Cucumber stories. Yeah, I, I haven't got to do it yet professionally, but it, it sounds good. It sounds like you had a pretty good experience with it. Yeah, there's some overhead with it. You know, you're adding in gems into your gem file and then you have to worry about, you know, getting proper tests because QA people, they kind of see the thing as a whole instead Mm -hmm. of breaking it down to little stories. So there is that ramp up learning period. But once everyone's prepared, accelerate your ability to write the test. Because as a developer, you're not having to really think about I need to test or what is the happy path that we need to test, you're already given all that and you can just then write the actual code that you're already familiar with. So maybe you can answer this, Dave, but I've always heard like the dream and the goal that people who use Cucumber had was that, you know, QA and product managers could be writing tests. And I've always heard that that never truly came to fruition. 
It is in the sense that they are writing the pseudocode, like the more natural human language code for the test, but it still requires your backend developer or someone who has knowledge of Ruby or the application to actually write the test that's associated with each line that Cucumber is given. Gotcha. Yeah, I've always just heard that it works in an ideal situation, but if there's ever a breakdown in like, oh, well, you know, QA doesn't, isn't writing good tests at all. And that's like obviously an organizational thing and it never gets fixed. And like the beauty of using Cucumber is like lost at that point. Yeah. And to put it in this terms, the person that we had writing the Cucumber tests, they did not have any kind of programming background. They did not want to learn programming, but they were intelligent to be able to follow the syntactual restrictions that Cucumber had. Like you have to start each sentence with, you know, these keywords, and then here's how you build onto those keywords in the sentence. Was there anything else we want to talk about around testing or storytelling our tests? The only other note I had, um, I don't know if what y'all have uh, done outside of Ruby and stuff, but I have found a similar sense of like just the headspace of talking about functions and components or modules uh, with typed uh, languages. So we've been using TypeScript more at work and I find that I feel the need to test less things like, and I have a lot of confidence, high degree of confidence in how, how things are going to perform. And again, it starts with writing type signatures to start of just like, before I get into the implementation of it, right? Like, what does this thing take in? What does it return? And, and, what are, and, and by taking the time to spec it out again, it, sometimes it feels like extra work and at when I, my first exposure, I would be like, man, this is like kind of a lot of extra <laughs> overhead just to get a function working. But I've slowly gotten more into the groove and I find that I'm able to focus almost more clearly when, when it is implementation time. And otherwise, I'm just, I, I feel like I have a better sense of how things are actually working and collaborating as, as like multiple parts instead of just one-off units at a time. Like I have a better sense of how things actually come together. So I'm curious if um, y'all have experimented with anything like that at all. Not too much. The most I've done was uh, play around with action view components, which is going to be in Rails 6.1. And the idea of it is instead of having, you know, presenters or anything like that in your view or just really lightening up your view, because usually when we write unit tests, views aren't covered. So the idea with the action view components is you're basically creating a plain old Ruby object, which acts as a view component, which can be easily tested. So also kind of the idea there is you're simplifying your view by instead of passing in complex objects, you're really just passing in and you can do some validations and type checks on Mm. the component or the parameters that you're passing into these view components. I think I saw that uh, that talk at RailsConf. Like, was it a GitHub kind of internally yeah. developed yeah, thing? Yeah, that was really mm-hmm. cool. And so it's actually already been merged into the Rails core, and they are going to release it in 6.1, I believe. Yeah, I liked, I remember the, the takeaway I had from that was um, you have a better, basically the constructor function or the initializer defines the dependencies right for the view instead of 
having like random access to instance variables, right? Like you have keyword arguments, yeah. so you have a little more enforcement, which is nice. Yeah, and it inherits the active record validations. So you oh, can cool. validate that the presence is true for this parameter. You can validate it's a kind of integer or whatever. That's awesome. I haven't fully bought into it yet, though, honestly, because I think that they have made uh, a lot of good changes. You know, the Rails core team and the GitHub team, they have made a lot of progress with it and making it more of a uh, true view component where you have the Ruby file as the initializer, then that references a template HTML file, which would be the actual view component part of it. But I think that there's always still room for improvement, but it definitely is nice to be able to bring in your view tests outside of a system test and get more down to the unit tests for these views. Yeah, for sure. Well, Mike, if people want to follow online what you're doing, where should they go and look? Yeah, Twitter's you know good home base to check things out. It's just T Mike Shu S C H U. Yeah, that's me. Awesome. Back when functional programming was making its resurgence, I found it really interesting that a lot of people were moving over there and it almost felt like it was on hype and I didn't really understand the power of functional programming until I learned Elixir. Elixir is a functional programming language that's built on the Erlang virtual machine and it really does some interesting things and makes you build apps in a different way. But what's really fascinating about it is the speed of the applications, the ability to distribute work easily and just how it manages the functional programming and all of the nice things about it so that you don't have to worry about side effects and a lot of the other things that come out of functional programming. Plus, pattern matching in Elixir is a killer feature. If you're looking for a new language that you want to learn that is going to make a difference for you and give you the opportunity to challenge some of your thinking and find a new way of doing it, Elixir is a great way to go. And we have a podcast now on Elixir called Elixir Mix. And you can find that at elixirmix.com. Let's go ahead and move over into picks. Andrew, do you want to kick us off? Sure. First off, if you're interested in learning more about Action View components, Drifting Ruby number 196. Also, I have been playing with more editor configuration recently, probably more than I should, but that's not the point. One thing I found, it's the VS Code debugger is pretty good, but it can be difficult to set up for in a Rails app. And one extension that recently got released that I've been keeping my eye on is called uh, VS Code Ruby Debug. And it looks like it might make debugging a Rails app in VS Code a lot easier because right now you have to install a bunch of gems and you have to start the application a certain way. And it's just kind of a pain with the default Ruby extension. But this gem seems to be, or this package seems to be promising. So I'm keeping my eye on that. Awesome. Yeah, and thanks for the Drifter Ruby plug there. And I'll jump in with a couple of picks. One would be the Road Podcaster. So on this episode, I've been recording on the Road Podcaster because I'm actually stuck up in a hotel today and I brought this along with me instead of my Electro Voice RE20. So if you think the quality of my voice has been good on this episode, that's thanks to the Road Podcaster. And I had a second pick, but I don't remember what it is, so it wasn't that important. Mike, do you want to jump in with some picks? Sure. Yeah. I mean, based on the more on the front end side, definitely check out Storybook JS. They accommodate most modern JavaScript libraries, so Vue, Angular, React, 
I think you can, I think they have some vanilla implementations and yeah, I, I haven't been uh, as keen or as involved in the Ruby game. So no picks on the Ruby side of things, but check out Storybook. It's pretty cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I, I enjoyed uh, meeting you guys and having a good chat. Awesome. We'll talk to you later. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.